So thank you all for being here and being part of this. Uh, my name is uh, Ben Fike, as my wife Laura said, and uh, back, welcome, coming in, find a seat wherever. Um, we have been in uh, Durham, North Carolina for about the past four years with the uh, Cold Mill Road Church of Christ. Uh, this is also Samuel, our three-year-old, who's hanging out with grandparents uh, this week and is the most photogenic member of our family. Um, also live with Hank the Cowdog, who I've had since college and has lingered on through many uh, family transitions since then. I've been in ministry in Churches of Christ now for uh, 14 years. I figured out um, putting together this class. Finally did the math on all that. Uh, but served congregations in Texas, Abilene, Texas, Jackson, Mississippi, and then here most recently in Durham, North Carolina. Had an MDiv from ACU and uh, currently pursuing a certificate in spiritual direction from Eastern Mennonite Seminary, which has been a, a fun new adventure to start up. Um, okay, so getting into this class. Oh, my clicker is getting ahead of me. Okay, um, wondering if any of this sounds familiar to you uh, after the past two years. Um, so it was a few months into COVID where one of the members of my church wanted to sit down and have a meeting. And so we show up to the church building, and he's got his mask on, but he lets me know in the parking lot, I can wear this, I can not wear this, but it's not doing anything. I said, okay, we're off to a, a good start here. We finally sit down to talk, and he ends up telling me some about um, how the virus is a hoax. I end up learning about how some of my recent sermons were influenced by cultural Marxism and these under... As, sort of sinister forces that are, are working in the church, and am I aware of all these things that are happening? And very quickly just realized, I am living in a very different view of the world than this person who is sitting uh, across from me. Uh, after that meeting, too, was followed up with the YouTube uh, clips that started coming to my email where I finally had to let him know, listen, uh, I'm your pastor. I will talk to you anytime. I do not have time for your YouTube videos, <laughs> and I will not be watching those. Um, or uh, the meeting I had with an elder after um, the attack on the Capitol, January 6th, where in my sermon, I uh, narrated what looked to me a lot like a, an insurrection of people coming and trying to take by force our Capitol building. But he let me know, especially using that word, was... Um, something that was kind of a liberal talking point, and isn't that divisive language, and do we need to be using this kind of language when we're talking in the church? And I realized once again, boy, the way I'm seeing reality, what is very clear to me, is just not the same way that people around me are making sense of all this. Or I think about the classroom discussion we had about uh, being mistreated here recently at church. And uh, somebody said, I've just got to say it, I think one of the people who's been the most mistreated here recently has been our former president, Donald Trump. And I heard him saying this, and I looked over at our super progressive liberal school board member, and I saw her eyes almost roll out the back of her head. <laughs> she hears this too, and just realized we are really in different, different places. I just say nothing of the awkward conversations we had um, in 2020 after the fallout of George Floyd's murder around race, and how do we see what is happening in the world. Is this ringing a bell for anybody? I assume that's part of why you're here, is uh, we're trying to make sense of this. And I am too. I, I, I'm certainly not an expert at it, but it, it set me down a path of uh, getting curious about this. How do we stay in community with people when the way we're seeing the world is so different? Welcome. Come on in. I think we've got uh, seats more towards the front right now. So come find any of those. Um, 
a passage I was preaching through the Gospel of Mark uh, around this time too, and there's a section, the middle section of Mark's Gospel, where he sort of stacks uh, several different stories together that are actually around this in the ministry of Jesus, where uh, Jesus begins teaching about his death that's coming up in Jerusalem, but all the people around him seem to not really understand what he's talking about at all. And there's this talking over. It's a section of the gospel that Mark, who's kind of a literary genius, I think, frames with these two stories about blind men being healed by Jesus. And the first one, Jesus touches twice, and then he's able to see. Um, the second one, which happens in Mark chapter 10, after a series of stories, there's a rich man who comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus tells him, uh, he looks at him and he loves him, right, in Mark's gospel. Uh, he tells him, well, one thing you're missing is you've got to go sell everything. And that is not what the man signed up for. He's not seeing Jesus in the same way. Um, and then uh, James and John come along. I like James and John and Mark's gospel too. There's another story about James and John where uh, they come and report to Jesus and say, hey, we heard about this guy casting out demons in your name, but we told him to knock it off because he's not one of us. And Jesus says, what are you doing? Uh, don't do that. If anybody's not against us, then they're for us. But they're seeing the same situation in very different ways. But James and John come to Jesus, and their next idea is, hey, when you go into Jerusalem and you establish your kingdom, one of us wants to sit at your right hand, one of us wants to sit at your left hand. And Jesus, again, has this exchange, this misunderstanding with them, um, where they're clearly not seeing things the same way. And that leads to this story, which is in Mark chapter 10. They came to Jericho, Jesus and all his disciples, who are seeing the world in very different ways. As he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, my teacher, I want to see. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. And that uh, story became something of a prayer for me and just thinking about how to negotiate this season of ministry. Uh, Lord, I want to see. Uh, clearly, I'm missing something <laughs> in what's going on here is we're seeing things so differently, but I want to see. And I want to see the way that Jesus sees. Uh, but I realized in that too, that the disconnect we're experiencing in our church isn't just related to kind of sense data. We're all looking at the same things, right? We're seeing the same events. We're having the same sorts of experiences. But where the disconnect seems to be happening is in our sense making. How do we make meaning out of what we're seeing and hearing and experiences, experiencing? And so much of those kinds of differences in worldview and differences in the way we're framing situations seems to live in that place of how are we interpreting what's going on here. Um, and it made me think about how part of our spiritual formation into the likeness of Christ involves 
a transformation in our sense-making. Uh, it involves our ways of thinking. How are we perceiving the reality that's around us, and how is that being changed? Uh, two scriptures became sort of important to me in this, too, that I'd like to read for us this morning. Uh, one is Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Uh, Philippians is kind of a fundraising letter. Uh, it's the congregation that is supporting Paul's ministry, and so much of the language is about how we're sharing in this same work together, and what does it mean to be unified in the same sort of mission. Now, I'm out here doing my work uh, in prison currently as he's writing this letter, and yet you're sharing with me in this. And then we also get a sense in, in Philippi, too, that there's some tensions kind of bubbling up in the church, too. We don't know exactly what's going on, but there's some, some conflict that's going on there, too. So Paul's speaking into that when he says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy. Make my joy complete. Be of the same mind. That word mind has to do with the thinking process. Be thinking about things the same way. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind, one thinking. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And the, uh, what follows here is the famous uh, Christ hymn in Philippians 2, where it's looking to Christ, who, even though he was in very nature God, didn't consider that something to be used to his own advantage. But let your thinking be like this, a thinking rooted in humility. Um, another passage that became significant to me, too, is from Romans in chapter 12. as he's exploring this new life in Christ that Jews and Gentiles share together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That word we translate spiritual often uh, actually has to do with reasonable. Um, it's connected to the ways we think. Uh, thinking clearly together. Uh, do not be conformed to this world or this age, this era that you're finding yourselves in, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there's sort of an assumption implicit in those passages uh, that there's something about coming to Christ that renews our thinking and renews the ways that we see the world. We're making sense of the world. Um, and it has to do with humility. It has to do with seeing one another in a different way. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to do with agreeing about everything, but there's this transformed vision that happens in community. Um, so... Uh, I'm no psychologist, but getting proximate to this um, made me think about some of the new things we are learning in psychology about how do we think. Uh, one of the questions that came up for me, especially in that Romans passage, is what is a mind formed to this age? If we're going to be transformed um, into the image and likeness of Christ, what is it that we're being transformed from? How does our mind 
behave? What sort of patterns does it fall into and in ways of making sense of the world that are being changed? Um, uh, so in psychology, a cognition is the word that kind of refers to those patterns of thinking or thought processes. Um, so how am I making sense of the world that's around me? Here's one definition. Uh, cognition refers to a range of mental processes relating to the acquisition, storage, manipulation, and retrieval of information. So the information's out there. When we're thinking about cognition, it's again that process of how am I receiving what's out there in the world and making sense out of it. Um, so uh, getting into this too, uh, also uh, dipping my toe into uh, some of what we're learning about the brain and how this whole process of cognition works. Probably the most helpful metaphor that I heard about all this is that where we are right now with understanding how our brains work is sort of like where Galileo was in understanding the universe. Uh, that there is still so much more to learn about how these processes work, of how our brains work. But we're, we're getting somewhere. Galileo was getting somewhere, right, uh, when he was exploring the universe. Uh, but we also realize we're just dipping our toes into all this, too. I came across around this time, too, a resource uh, by a guy named Brian McLaren. I hadn't really read much. I know he's had a, quite a career. But he wrote a little ebook called Why Don't They Get It? Overcoming Bias in Yourself and Others. And I thought, that's what I want to know. Why don't they get it? <laughs> um, so he's bringing together psychology and neuroscience and spirituality and communication and kind of bringing it to uh, the same set of questions. He wrote the book in 2019, so it's actually pre-COVID, uh, but was noticing a lot of the same trends that we're talking about. We're beginning to accelerate. People are really seeing the world in radically different ways. And how do we communicate with one another? A part of what he figured out as he was questioning that is that he had really bought wholesale into uh, an old maxim of uh, the Enlightenment, which is that reasonable men will agree. Um, it is men, right? This is coming out of Enlightenment thinking in the 1700s, 1800s. Uh, we kind of started to build a foundation of how do we make sense of the world? And we figured out, you know, we had these reasoning faculties as people, and those are pretty reliable and trustworthy. But the assumption was, if reasonable men get together, they're going to agree. Uh, but that doesn't bear out in our experience, does it? Um, even my COVID-denying friend who uh, came to our church and wanted to talk to me, he's a reasonable guy. Uh, he's not an unreasonable guy. He's somebody who I would trust uh, with any number of different things. And yet the way he is making sense of the world is really different than the way I am. And we do not agree about how to make sense of all those things either. Um, so McLaren had a flip in his thinking. He created a new maxim. People who think they're reasonable don't agree on much, except that anyone who disagrees with them is unreasonable. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right, doesn't it? Um, McLaren's building on some research by a guy named George Lakoff who's uh, done a lot of work on cognition and how we make sense of the world. Um, here's a longer quote of his talking about the same thing. Contrasting enlightenment reason and sort of this new understanding of reason that's coming through cognitive sciences. Enlightenment reason says everybody reasons the same way, and that's what makes them human. I think, therefore, I am, right? Whereas if you have different worldviews, you're going to reason differently. Enlightenment reason says that you, all you need to do is get the facts, 
and everybody will reason it to the same conclusion, since everybody has the same reason. No. If they have different worldviews, they'll reason to different conclusions. Enlightenment reason does not recognize different worldviews. Enlightenment reason doesn't admit framing. It doesn't admit metaphorical thought. It doesn't admit the way people really work. Um, Richard Rohr uh, puts this in a more pithy way. Most people do not see things as they are, rather they see things as they are. Yeah. We're starting with something, right? Uh, we have a framework that we're working from. Um, so in looking at this too, I found a name for some of those things that get in the way of us seeing clearly. And uh, the word uh, cognitive scientists use is bias. Now, biases can cause us to resist and to reject messages that we otherwise should accept as true and good and right. Um, and can also cause us to accept things that we really shouldn't. Um, so now that we've got a name for it, we can figure out how to fix all our church people, right? Uh, but not so fast. I think it may be more helpful to start by recognizing biases as something, this clicker is really moving, um, that we cannot escape. It might be better to start with a confession. Uh, most often, I do not see things as they are. Rather, I see things as I am. Uh, we can't get outside of this. And so we have to learn how do we work within it, uh, within our churches. Uh, so we can't really fix biases. When we start talking about biases, we're not trying to fix them. How do I get rid of them in myself or in others? Uh, some things we can do, though, uh, we can raise our awareness. We can know they're in the room with us. Um, and in the conversation, that's, they're part of the filters that are getting in our communication processes. Um, and I hope that can make us more compassionate towards ourselves and others. This again reminds me of some of Paul's language in Philippians. Uh, consider the needs of others as greater than your own, that you go into uh, the room compassionate and humble and are thinking about what the other person needs. Um, I also hope it can help us nurture courage to challenge biases when they do come up in ourselves and others um, as we get into uh, the work of ministry or just living in community with other people. Um, and for those of us who are in church leadership roles or in roles where we're communicating a lot, a lot too, we can learn more about biases can help make us more effective uh, communicators too, I hope. Uh, the old scriptural language says this, we can bear with one another and love. Biases are something to be born through, uh, not something to be discarded or uh, to get rid of. Okay, so let's talk about some, uh, some common cognitive biases. At this point too, um, I'd really like to invite you all into the conversation with me. As I introduce these, I think uh, some experiences for you might start to come into, into play. And um, so I'd like to invite, I'll invite you to share some of your experiences too, like I did up front, if there's some conversations that sort of make you think of this. Uh, the first one, and kind of the foundational bias, is confirmation bias, uh, which is this. We judge new ideas based on the ease with which they fit in with and confirm the only standard we have, old ideas, old information, and trusted authorities. As a result, our framing story our belief system or paradigm excludes whatever doesn't fit. Um, so 
part of the way you think about this, have you ever noticed that thing where every time you think about your mom, she seems to call you? Mm-hmm. That phenomenon that happens? I'm thinking about this person and then they call, right? Well, once you start to believe something like that, if that becomes a framing story, you know, every time I think about this person, they call, then you begin to exclude, what about all the times you think about your mom and they never call? (laughs) Which is quite often. Or what about those times when your mom calls and you weren't thinking about her at all? Um, Once we kind of start to believe in a particular frame, we immediately, everything that confirms that belief goes in, everything that falls outside of that belief begins to be excluded. We're all doing this all the time uh, where we're confirming all this. Um, yeah, I, I think about another church story I was thinking about too. Uh, I mentioned the George Floyd stuff and I appreciate a few sermons about that. And um, one of my church leaders said, you're only talking about race um, in your sermons. You need to be talking about other things. So I went back and looked at my actual sermons that I had preached over the span of about three months I had mentioned race in my sermons three times. (laughs) But once he began to believe, you're only talking about this, any time I referenced anything that might be in that ballpark was suddenly about race. And the whole sermon becomes about race. But that's not actually what we're doing, right? So we can fall into this trap all the time. Any of you have some stories you may think about where you're seeing confirmation bias at work in yourself and others, making sense of some of our experiences? Yeah, it's just how we work, right? It's just kind of a shortcut. Um, and some of these, as we look at these biases too, uh, part of it's necessary. Like we can't wake up every day and take in every single piece of information that's coming our way. Our, our brains come up with these shortcuts because that's how we survive. And that's how we survive in community. That's how we survive in a very complex and sometimes disorienting world. And so it can really be to our advantage um, that these happen they can begin to get in the way uh, when we start to get into things like community or when we start to get into things like learning new ideas or confronting new realities as we face difference. Um, That's where they start to hang us up a little bit. Um, Let's think about some more. And in some ways too, all of these we'll be looking at are are kind of coming out of this foundation. This is a real foundational sort of principle for thinking about how we make sense of the world. I'm not going to try that clicker again. Here we go. Uh, This one's complexity bias. Um, Our brains prefer a simple falsehood to a complex truth. Um, In some sense, we may think our brains are kind of lazy in this sense, right? Uh, We we sort of gravitate towards simple things. But it's also true our brains are busy. Uh, Our brains have a lot of work to do, (laughs) keeping us alive and making sense of the world and everything that's going on. And... um, So uh, we tend to kind of filter out things that are really complex, things that require a lot of thinking. Uh, I think about the COVID denier phenomenon. Now, I don't know where everybody is in this room around that or whatever, but COVID's a real virus. And, um, but it it was really complex to get our heads around what was happening with it, right? That here's this virus and it's really dangerous and it kills a lot of people, but it does kill everybody. And some people get sick with it and other people don't. And it sort of spreads. Uh, we don't know that much about it. It's, it's just a very, very complex reality to begin to try to grapple with. Oh, this new virus has been introduced into our whole system. How, what do we do around this? 
Um, and so uh, people tended to kind of gravitate towards simple explanations. Uh, okay, if I wear my mask all the time, then I'm never going to get COVID and I'm fine, right? Um, or it's, it's not real. It's just out there somewhere else. It's, it's fake. Someone's lying to me. Um, those are easier things to believe than trying to tease out all the complexities that were involved with something new like that. Um, any examples of this? Anything coming to mind for you? Think about confronting complexity bias. Actually, I just recently was talking to a friend, and her husband um, was ill. And you know, with those home tests, they're not always reliable. And so, took a couple of those, and it was negative. Took another test with the, the doctor somewhere, and it was positive, and then negative, and and, and then. It was, I don't know what these doctors are doing and what they're trying to push up on us. It, and I was like, yeah. yeah. You know, you, you really don't know what to say. Sure. Yeah, when you confront that. But I think in some sense we can, we can relate to that, right? Like that's frustrating <clears throat> when the reality is so complex. We want it to be simple, straightforward. Just give me an answer. Let me know what it is. It's not always that easy. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I see this a lot um, similarly when, as Christians, we might try to explain um, when someone is sick or hurt or something, uh, some kind of tragedy. It's easier to believe in, in like, almost cute little phrases like God's in control. Sure. God yeah, did yeah. this for a reason. Then, well, actually, life is a lot more complicated than that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, I experience this a lot on social media oh. or uh, news channels in general because they tend to be motivated to move toward the simplest rendition of the truth that actually confirms the bias that they have. Right. To. Yeah, there's a frame. So, we're, so much of the media we're consuming is not created to introduce complexity or nuance. It is to you know, reinforce the truth that we've already decided and do it as quickly as we can. Yes. TikTok video or, a, you know, something on Facebook. Yeah, some quick sound bite that kind of grabs you and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm thinking about just our tradition, historically the way that we've referred to ourselves as a Bible-only tradition, mm. which is a uh, far too overly simplified way yeah. of describing the ways in which we've emerged out of our social location the ways in which we have uh, crafted other creeds that sort of, yeah. uh, you know, help help drive our, our communities. And so um, there's some good work being done right now to help us sort of complicate that history a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, to help us better contextualize yourself. But uh, I still hear, I think, in our, in our churches that that simple statement, well, it's just scripture only, right? It's just, right. It's just based on the Bible. It's sort of the, the enlightenment mentality of if we both come to the Bible, we're going to come to the same conclusion. Well, yeah, we'll just reason this out together. And yeah, absolutely. Can I ask and, a question? Sure. Would the um, inverse of this be the same? Like, our brains prefer simple truths to complex falsehoods. Like, is that, would that fit with this too? Sometimes it's easy just to say, similarly, like, the Bible says it, it's good enough for me, instead yeah. of like, well, that way of thinking is actually false it's a little more complicated than that is so would the re reverse of that be true be true or that simple are... truths to complex falsehoods it's almost a like simple truth yeah yeah the, the difference yeah. between simple and complex yes is what I'm, okay 
That's right. Yeah, that, that would be the contrast there. Um, yeah, and some truths I think can be stated simply. Um, but in general, uh, we're going to gravitate towards those simple explanations rather than a more complex, yeah. okay. nuanced explanation. Yeah. So, yeah, Matt? I think this connects to, to what you just said a little bit, but I've just noticed a lot of people at our church who are, who are new to church or are new to God, like uh, sometimes the expectation is that like they should just be able to read Scripture and figure it out. Uh, and I think part of it is we just don't want to have to. We don't want to sit out and figure it out with them, uh, or or figure something out different for ourselves uh, than what we originally uh, crafted our minds as true. Yeah. Um, and so I think I think that's I mean the complexity of scripture, right, is something that we try to make real simple uh, or make it seem like it's you can just figure it out individually when it's a, a communal. It actually takes. Right? Yeah. Well, complexity is exhausting. Right? I mean, dealing with how complex life is and all the different factors that can filter in or whatever, oh man, that takes a lot of work. So, um, so we understand this. We can, we can sympathize with this, I hope. We can see this in ourselves. We can see this in others. And again, part of it's necessary for our survival. Um, eventually, we've got to settle on something. <laughs> you can't just kind of get lost in uh, endless speculation, too. Um, here's another one, community bias. It's almost impossible to see what our community doesn't, can't, or won't see. Um, I think all the time about when we moved to um, Jackson, Mississippi, I mentioned, um, which is in the deep south, if you weren't aware, in uh, the U.S., and uh, has a, a very fraught racial history there, especially. And our church was predominantly white. And uh, they paired us with a white real estate agent, and uh, she was kind of showing us around the area. Uh, but we figured out very quickly as she was driving us around, there was just a certain part of town she was never taking us to. And so we asked, like, what's over there? And she said, oh, well, nobody lives there. Nobody lives there. So we got a rental car, uh, me and my wife did. And, of course, the first thing we do is we get in our car and we go over there and go see. Um, there are tons of people who live over there. Yeah. Uh, it's predominantly black neighborhoods, mostly black middle-class neighborhoods, actually. Um, but uh, this woman... Uh, her community, and we'll talk about um, contact bias in a minute to you, connects with all this too. Um, for her, uh, within her frame, everybody she knows lives in this place. Right. And so it's hard to see what you don't see and what you don't want to see uh, sometimes in your community. That uh, can be impossible sometimes to see. Uh, we're social creatures, aren't we? Uh, and this came up too as Matt was talking about scripture too. Um, you, you don't just pass somebody the Bible and then they learn it themselves. We learn it in community um, because we need that in order to make sense of the world. None of us can, can possess it all together. Um, yeah, let's talk about another one. Complementarity. That's a good word. Complementarity bias. How does this one work? If you're hostile to my idea, I will be hostile to yours. If you're curious and respectful towards my idea, I'll respond in kind. Um, I had realized I was having a lot of conflict with a person at my church, um, and I was just disagreeable with them all the time. Everything they said was just driving me crazy. And um, I was trying to work it out with my spiritual director and telling him some about that. And in that process, 
um, in, in prayer, really, a phrase came to me where it's just like, what if he's right? What if he's right? And I began to enter into those conversations from that perspective and sort of realized my real source of conflict was I just didn't like his communication style. Um, I didn't like the way he talked to me and the way he made me feel when he talked to me. It didn't actually have anything to do with whether or not ideas were right or wrong or if uh, whatever, but it was all in that kind of personality conflict. And so I wasn't able to hear what he was bringing to the table, which was often good, um, because that uh, bias was at work of, well, if you're not going to treat me the way I want to be treated, then I'm not even going to hear you at all. Um, so this can slip in uh, pretty easily. Uh, can you all think about examples where this may be at play? For you. So I might have a person. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that when they start walking up to me at church, I literally feel myself in your body. There's a in response. my body. Yeah, yeah. I start getting defensive. Yep. And uh, sometimes the word, man, uh, they're such an idiot, and I hate that. Yeah. yeah. But just everything they say just irritates me, and so I've tried to do that, but I'm not succeeding well yet. Yeah, well, like we said, I mean, just becoming aware yeah. is, is something we can do, Yeah, knowing that that's in the room. Yeah. Just yesterday, we were um, talking to the couple that's sharing the room in our dormitory, and um, we were asking what they did for work and everything, and so this one particular guy who's a young man, and just really, really intelligent, so that's the first thing that came at me, that he was so he's telling me what he did. He was kind of this new kind of therapy and this new kind of plant that I had never heard about. Yeah. I'm wanting to know if it's like, I'm asking all the real questions, right? That's just who I am out the door with all these kinds of things. And in my head, I'm thinking, he's an idiot. <laughs> this guy, I'm not, I'm, so I'm, I always go in the disbelief, kind of like, prove it first, prove it first. All right, doesn't fit the frame. He on that yeah. cutting edge of something that can be entirely new, whereas my friend here, <laughs> which I appreciate, is buying more into that because her studies and the things that she's uh -huh. doing are really pulling true to those ads. So I have to be really careful in my complementary bias to understand where the middle of this. So I'm not stuck behind, you know, and believing whatever that therapy and that plant is doing for them and their health, but trying to move and be more progressive towards it. So I see that more as that complementary bias of, you know, I'm, you know, you're curious about those kinds of things, but I still have my feelings inside about Yeah, them. sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't quite fit the old paradigm, yeah. right? There's a new idea that's coming in. And, um, yeah, curiosity and, and respect, uh, those don't cost us anything. Mm -hmm. Those don't cost you anything. And, and you don't have to buy into what they're selling either to be curious and respectful. Um, but... That is a posture, uh, yeah, that we can hold towards others. Um, that also has the added benefit of they will likely be more open to our perspective um, because that's the case. Um, here's one of my favorites, competency bias. Uh, Chris Seedman was talking about this last night, uh, competency and incompetence. We don't know how much or little we know because we don't know how much or little others know. Uh, this is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Has anybody heard about this? Um, there's been these studies. So people who are uh, pretty incompetent in whatever the topic of discussion is assume everybody else is about as incompetent as they are, and they're probably in the middle of the pack. And so uh, often in group settings, these people will speak up a lot <laughs> and share a lot of what's on their mind because they think everybody else knows about as little as I do about this, right? So we're all, we're all in this together. So they overestimate how competent they are. 
Uh, those who are competent in certain areas tend to know how complex whatever that area actually is. And so they tend to uh, devalue their own competence. And they think, I, I actually know that I don't know that much about this, which means they know more than the guy who doesn't, right? Um, and so uh, this is a real pickle. Uh, but I like the way Chris was talking about it last night, of uh, that shift that happens from incompetent in ministry but doesn't know it, you're not aware of it, to that shift that comes from incompetent but I do know it. Uh, that actually is part of the maturing process, right? Um, and actually coming to that place of I'm incompetent and I do know it means you've developed some competencies in ministry that are valuable uh, compared to the person who doesn't. Um, he was talking about this with his church, too, which I'm sure a lot of us can relate to, especially with the pandemic. Everybody became experts on everything, right? Suddenly, everybody knows everything about everything. And, uh, and those of us who may be a little bit more inclined to say, you know what? I really am not a virologist. Like, I really don't know what all this is. Often those voices become the most muted in the conversation. Um, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Just in terms of, like, the church environment, yeah. it seems to me like, we feed in more um, to creating this bias to like live and grow, just in terms of like, because we're not really all that honest sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, when somebody's not doing as well as they, they really should be doing, or if you hear a sermon and really you, they didn't do the work that, and everybody is like, oh, that's so awesome and wonderful. and like no that's not really true yeah no absolutely i think we can feed into a lot of these thank you well and i think our competency bias also you have to consider not only education you know research etc you have to consider experience in that um i'm i have somebody my husband and i have a grief counseling ministry mm -hmm. and um, somebody who is our age actually a little older than I am um, is a minister and does a lot of counseling and has taken some classes um, I personally have lost a child a husband both my parents all of my grandparents and mm -hmm. a sibling and I've experienced a lot of grief and this other person who does counseling um, has never lost anybody. Both his parents are still living in their 90s. All of his children are living. All of his grandchildren are living. All of his, you know, his, his wife is still living. And his counseling to his people is Christians don't grieve. Mm. Second Thessalonians, Christians don't grieve. And I may or may not have said he was an idiot. But he's taken the classes, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. so he has the knowledge of grief counseling, but he does not have the experience of grief and does not, he, he quit reading after Christians don't grieve. You know, yeah. as other people grieve. We have the hope we're going to see them in the future, you know, in eternity, but that doesn't make our emotions hurt any less right. when we sit down across it from an empty chair. Sure. You know? And so 
I think that we have to consider competency bias from an experiential standpoint. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, yeah. I've taken church administration classes when I was in college. Could I minister his church? <laughs> Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. I would have no idea how to be an administrator in his church of over a thousand people. You know? Yeah, that's a very different experience. You know, I, yeah, I, I know that I have the head knowledge, but I have never been a church administrator of a twenty-member church. How could I step in and sure. administer? Yeah. You know? So experience means a lot in competency bias. Yeah, that's, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I'm so sorry for your loss too, but appreciate you sharing that with it's, us. It's what sin does. Um, we have several more of these. We're going to try to get through. Uh, consciousness bias. Some things simply can't be seen from where I am right now. Now this speaks some to that experiential knowing that you're talking about too. But if I keep growing, maturing, and developing, someday I will be able to see what is now inaccessible to me. Um, one of the stories I think about here was I had a philosophy of religion class when I was getting my MDiv uh, with Fred Aquino at uh, ACU. I don't know if there's any ACU people in the room. And uh, talk about another one of those personalities that rubbed me the wrong way all the time was Fred. He's this brash kind of guy from New York. And uh, I remember in that class, I, I was just confused constantly. And at one point in his lecture, he said, for a lot of you, uh, you're not going to understand anything that's in this class, but in about two years, you're going to get it. And I was just like, what? This guy, you know, this guy doesn't understand it. Well, sure enough, uh, that concept, about two years later, <laughs> it clicked in for me. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's what we were talking about uh, in that class two years ago. And, um, but I think he very wisely knew some of you aren't quite ready for this yet, um, but also was a pretty masterful teacher, I think, in introducing us at a level that if you stay on this path, you're gonna, it's going to click in for you. Um, so sometimes just where the stage of, of consciousness, the stage of awareness we are, can get in the way too. A comfort or complacency bias. I prefer not to have my comfort disturbed. Um, everybody in church can relate to this, right? Um, anything that's a little uncomfortable ooh, can trigger um, that bias for all of us, uh, not, just, not just out there. That's for us, too. Um, here's one, conservative liberal bias, which is important. Um, I lean toward nurturing fairness and kindness or toward strictly enforcing purity, loyalty, liberty, and authority as an expression of my political identity. Uh, George Lakoff, who I mentioned earlier, has done a lot of research on this, as well as uh, Jonathan Hyatt wrote a wonderful book, The Righteous Mind, about uh, psychology and morality. And um, there's a lot more we can say about all that. I don't know that we have time for it today. Um, but it, it's true that often our preference for kind of our political ideology is in our thinking processes. Uh, that there are some people who just sort of have a tendency in one direction, some people who have a tendency towards another. So some of those differences where it's like, what sort of world are you living in? That world may be very different uh, from the way you're making sense. And so, again, building compassion and, and understanding curiosity can be helpful for overcoming some of those divides. Um, confidence bias. I am attracted to confidence, even if it is false. I often prefer the bold lie to the hesitant truth. Um, a con artist is a confidence artist. That's a person <laughs> who has learned how to manipulate this bias in people. Um, somebody who comes in very strong, very confident, 
um, we gravitate towards that. We prefer that. We like somebody who comes in confident. And yeah, this can get us in a lot of trouble in church too. The, the most confident voice is often the voice that wins the whole conversation. Um, and it just has to do with this. It doesn't really have, may not be the best idea in the room. Um, that's a very real one. Uh, catastrophe bias. I remember dramatic catastrophes, but don't notice gradual decline or improvement. This was another one of those with uh, COVID. Uh, we, I think we kept waiting for the disaster to hit, right? But it wasn't that kind of disaster. It hasn't been that kind of disaster. It's still going. Um, that's very gradual. I, I think about two, uh, I grew up in Northern Colorado and we had family in St. Louis, Missouri. And so the trip from Colorado to Missouri, uh, we drove the entire length of Kansas. So is anybody from Kansas? Mass from Kansas? Okay, plug your ears. Uh, <laughs> Kansas, <laughs> Kansas is the most boring state to drive through, right? Uh, it was just long and it was flat. The game we played in the car was uh, counting all the water towers in the different towns in Kansas. Like, that's what we did. But also on that drive, um, I remember my dad, whenever we got gas, he would get out of the car and he would have to scrape from our windshield just tons and tons of bugs. Right? Um, when was the last time any of you did that? So... Our bug population has been in serious decline for the past several decades. Uh, all that driving through Kansas, we were participating in mass bug genocide. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we did not know it. We didn't know that's what, what was going on. But it happened so slowly that uh, for most of us, it didn't even register. Or may not until today. So congratulations. You can learn more about uh, bugs, but we tend to remember the big cataclysmic events. We tend not to notice slow, gradual decline. Uh, contact bias I talked about earlier. Uh, when I don't have intense, sustained personal contact with the other, somebody who's different, my prejudices and false assumptions go unchallenged. Um, so simply being in relationship with those who are different from us uh, can help with this. Cash bias, this one's wow. trickiest one, right? It's hard for me to see something when my way of making a living requires me not to see it. Wow. Woo. That one's tricky. But think about uh, tobacco companies, right? Uh, all the researchers out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, come on. I was part of a missions agency for several years. It didn't have anything to do with the church of Christ, but I eventually figured out there was a lot of abuse in the organization. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and of course, the main people that me and my staff reported to were fundraising coaches who live off of the money that we're raising to them. And anyway, I, I can talk through every single type of yes. bias. Yeah, bias from that experience. You know, even if I confronted it, like confirmation bias, I believe this is abuse. So I'm going to see everything through that lens. Yeah. Yes. But anyway, it's just been really interesting. I didn't know about this one. Yeah, no, thanks. Yeah, this one, I mean, this one's a. I don't like to think about it too much. <laughs> it's my way of making a living is wrapped up in that. Um, conspiracy bias. Under stress or shame, our brains are attracted to stories that relieve us, exonerate us, or betray us as innocent victims of malicious conspirators. We've heard some of this too, haven't we, um, recently? But we're all prone towards that too. Um, all that pain has to go somewhere, and oftentimes we can kind of create monsters 
who are causing that pain. That's a little easier for us to believe sometimes than some of the complexities of what's going on. Um, all right, that's 13. How are we feeling? Um, how are you feeling about all this? Uh, does this fit your existing frame? Or is this new information? Are we accepting it or rejecting it? I think for me, naming some of them yeah. has helped. Having a name for it. Yeah, yeah it can be very helpful. Um, is 13 too many? Should I have done six? Yeah. We could get six, right? But 13, that might be too many. Um, are you looking around the room to see if everybody else is buying into this or not? <laughs> to kind of gauge, is this reliable information? Um, am I the kind of person that you trust? Have I, have I endeared myself to you enough? Uh, we can kind of see how these work, right? When we're confronted with new information, uh, that they're all at play and in the room with us. Uh, just as a reminder, uh, biases are not something we're trying to fix. Uh, we live with them, and they're part of our thinking. Again, they're part of our survival as a species. They can be very helpful. Uh, some things we can do, though, we can raise awareness. Having names for it is huge. Uh, be more compassionate towards others and ourselves. Um, nurture courage to challenge biases and, and ourselves and others when they arrive. And seek to be wise and bias-aware in our communication with others. Uh, we can bear with one another in love and bear through our biases together. Um, and I hope uh, for all of you in whatever context you're in uh, that that will be something you do. A um, few resources really recommend Brian McLaren's book, uh, Super Simple. Uh, simple. He uh, was the one who gave all the names to these two. They all start with C. Did you notice that too? That's, uh, that's directly related alliteration to bias. alliteration <laughs> bias. That's right. But that doesn't start with a C. So. Uh, but no, he did that on purpose, right? Uh, complexity bias kicks in. If everything has a different letter, um, he's appealing to uh, our biases there. Uh, but very helpful little book. He has that on his website. Uh, he also did a podcast with the Center for Action and Contemplation where uh, they explore these in a bit more detail and kind of a community conversation and a uh, helpful resource too. Uh, there's an online website. I mentioned The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Hyatt too is a book I really recommend also. Um, not directly related to this, but especially that conservative liberal bias, which we didn't have too much time to explore. And I think we're a little over time, but thank you so much for being part of this conversation. I'd like to say a prayer for us quickly as we close. Lord, we want to see. Help us to see each other as you see us and to see this world that you've created. Help us to grow in our compassion and understanding of ourselves and each other as we grow in our knowledge of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.